when the women arrived at that tomb on Easter Sunday, the angel said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he told you. This morning as we come together, we gather here, we celebrate the fact that we worship a God who is not dead, but a God who is very much alive. We worship a Savior who not only died for our sins, but demonstrated that he was who he said he was by being raised on the third day. Some of you are joining us for the first time. Uh, Some of you may be joining us for the first time in a long time. And just so you know, as a church, we've been, the last few weeks, we've been studying the book of Mark. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you ever come home like on a Saturday afternoon, maybe it's Sunday afternoon, you get home from the restaurant, and there's a movie on TV that that you've been wanting to see, and it's halfway through, and you're like, oh man, I really wanted to see this whole movie. And you start watching it, and you can't turn it off, even though you want to see it from the beginning, you can't turn it off, because like, there's some major action scene, or some major dialogue that's just taking place, and you're like, well, this is really good, I've got to watch the rest of this. So you end up watching the rest of it. Well, some of you may feel that way this morning, and I want to let you know that uh, you know, as a church, we've been going through the book of Mark, and you may feel like you've stepped into the middle of a story, and some of you may go home and say, man, I wish I could see this from the beginning. And I want to let you know all of our messages are online, but more important than that, we have here uh, reading guides for the book of Mark. Every week when we get together, we're not going through every chapter word by word, verse by verse. We're just going through each chapter. We take a small section, and we, we look at what the Word of God says in that little bitty section. But we want you to be able to read the entire book of Mark, the story of Jesus' life. Uh, and you can do that by picking up one of these reading guides. If you were to try to catch up with us. We're in chapter 10. It might take you maybe an hour or so this afternoon. You could get caught up fairly quickly. Or if you'd say, hey, I'm not really interested in catching up, but I want to go from this point forward. Pick up one of those reading guides. Just pick up where we are, Mark chapter 10, and join with us because we are seeing people's lives changed as they engage with the Word of God. We're seeing people sharing their faith at work because of the Word of God. And it's as simple as saying, hey, uh, I've gathered a couple co-workers, and at lunchtime we read through this together. Or I've, I'm calling a family member, and we're reading through this together over the phone. Parents and children are sitting down at the dinner table, and it's changing lives. So we invite you to jump in. Jump in and don't miss the rest of the story. Uh, so as we've been going through the book of Mark this past week, I, I uh, was going through my journal and just trying to catch up with, with what God is showing me. And I wrote down a couple thoughts that we've seen throughout this series. And some of these were pretty challenging for me. And I don't know if, uh, if you were going to remember these or if maybe they challenged you in the same way. But one of the first things I wrote down is, Jesus may ask of you more than you plan to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you could imagine. That's kind of how we started the series, that Jesus may ask of you more than you plan to give, but he can give you infinitely more than you could ever imagine. And I I found this one. Is there anything Jesus could ask that would be too much? If Jesus really is who he said he is, is there anything that he could ask of us that would be out of bounds? And the answer is, if Jesus is who he said he is, then anything he asks of us is reasonable, right? Right? he really is the son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and on the third day rose again, then is there anything too much for him to ask from us? The answer is no. And then just a few weeks ago, the one that has kind of been hitting me the hardest, uh, 
Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Live as though death is not. Those are some challenging thoughts. And I'm sure some of you, as we've gone through this series, you get in your car, you're on your way home, and you're thinking to yourself, man, that was a really challenging, that was a tough thing to hear. I'm not sure I like Chuck as much as I used to. Uh, but here's the thing, is, is that it's not me. What we're doing is we're going through and we're seeing how Jesus taught his disciples. And we're learning. We're being challenged from the word of God. We're being challenged by Jesus' own words. And we're going to continue to be challenged this morning as we look at Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Jesus is going to continue to clarify with his disciples what it means for him to be the kingdom, be the king of the kingdom, and what it means for them to be his followers. And starting back in chapter 8, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we start to see this kind of series of questions, this theme that arises as the disciples are interacting with Jesus. And the question is, Jesus, who is significant? Jesus, what matters in this life? I think some of us wrestle with that same question today. What is significant? Who is significant? Who matters? And as we're going to see, Jesus is going to answer that here in chapter 10. Um, what I love about chapter 10, we haven't read through it yet as a church. You'll read through it this week. But just a, a few verses earlier, we have the account of the children coming to Jesus. And they come to Jesus and the disciples stop him. No, no, no. Jesus is far too busy for you kids. You are not significant. And Jesus says, no. No, let them come. They are significant. They're not trying to earn their way into the kingdom. They're just trying to receive it. That's significant. And then the very next story, we have a rich young man who comes to Jesus and the disciples think, oh, this guy is important. This guy's got money. He must be significant. Let's take him right to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, his money's getting in the way of his relationship with God. That's not very significant. And so you have the disciples questioning and they're, they're kind of stuck. They don't know what to do. And they're thinking, well, this changes everything that we ever thought. Jesus, are, if, if these kids are significant and the rich man's not, what about, what about you? Are you significant? I mean, you, you've told us you're going to be a king. You're going to have some power and authority, right? And Jesus says, yes, I am significant, but it's not in the way that you think. It's not going to happen the way you think. And then they begin to question, well, what about us, Jesus? Are we significant? Are we going to have that opportunity? And Jesus begins answering this and. Uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, we have James and John, who are part of Jesus' inner circle. You'll remember, Peter, James, and John were kind of his closest friends of the twelve. And James and John come to Jesus, and they ask him a question, and it just reveals that their thinking is about who is significant, who's important, and who matters. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 10, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in glory. They come and they say, look, we know that you are going to rule in glory. You've talked about your coming kingdom. You've talked about all these things. And when you sit on that throne, we want to sit next to you. We want to be right there. We want to have significance, honor, and respect, and power, and control. Jesus, we want to be significant when you come into your kingdom. And I think we end up asking the same questions today. 
I don't know if you realize it or not, but so often we go through life and we get upset about things because that person didn't give me the respect I deserve. They're not honoring me the way I think they should be honored. God, when am I going to get some control in my life? God, when am I going to get recognized for the things that I'm doing? God, when, when am I going to be recognized as significant? And the disciples are wrestling with this same thing. And Jesus goes on. In verse 38, says, But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. He says, Look, you don't even begin to understand what you're asking for. You can't even begin to imagine the important place that you're asking for. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you get into something and you, you just have no idea until you're in the middle of it what you've gotten yourself into? Has anybody ever been there before? Maybe it was your dream job. You finally got your dream job. You landed the job you've wanted your whole life and you get a few weeks into it and you're just miserable because it's not what you expected. It's not what you imagined. I have the privilege um, about every summer, uh, at least once or twice a year, I get to do a wedding. And I love when these young couples come to me and I get to do premarital counseling. And it's always fun. And I sit down with them and I say, are you ready to give your life away to someone else? And it's usually the girl who speaks up first. Oh, yes. We're so in love. Oh, I can't wait. And then she says, it's, it's going to be so amazing. Everything he does is so perfect. It's going to be great. Marriage is so wonderful. And then I love when I catch up with them, you know, a year or two down the road, and I'll say, hey, guys, how's it going? And usually the wife will speak up first. Marriage is a lot harder than I thought. Everything he does is so annoying. You ever get into something that you didn't expect? Sometimes it's good that you don't know what you're in for, right? Otherwise, you might not do it. And so the disciples don't know what they're asking. They don't know what they're getting into. And then Jesus says this in the second half of verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized? Now, there's a couple of words here that are pretty key to understanding this passage. Now, when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink, that cup is something significant. In the Old Testament, we read a lot about the cup of suffering. The cup symbolizes a vessel that is uh, set aside for suffering. It's the vessel that is uh, the vessel of divine wrath. And Jesus is saying, can you take that upon yourself the way that I'm about to take it upon myself? And we know that this is what Jesus has in mind because when he's in the garden, what does he pray? He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is saying, look, I don't, I don't desire to be the object of wrath. I know what that's going to be like. And if there's any way, Lord, if you, can, if you can still save people's souls by any other way, let this cup, this suffering, this divine wrath that I'm getting ready to face, let this pass from me. But not my will, your will be done. So Jesus is saying, hey, can you suffer like I'm about to suffer? And he goes on even further and he uses the word baptism now we read in the book of Job, it says that um, the baptism, he talks about the deep and dark waters of baptism. And this is symbolizing again the suffering that Jesus is about to face. And he's asking the disciples, can you suffer the way I suffer? Can you go through the same things that I'm getting ready to go through? And this is what they say in verse 39. We are able, they told him. And Jesus said, 
you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized. Jesus tells him very clearly, he says, look, you are going to suffer. You are going to suffer. You're going to face persecution. And we know that James, who's speaking with Jesus right now, is the first of the disciples to be executed, to be a martyr, to give his life. He suffered. And John, his brother, who he had the privilege of living about 50 additional years. He got to live into his 90s. But his whole life was suffering and pain because of the cross. Because of his mission for living out the cross and telling others about Jesus Christ. And so when he says, can you, can you suffer the suffering that I'm about to suffer? And they say, yes, we can. And Jesus says, absolutely you will. Absolutely you will suffer because of me. No, your, your death is not going to save anyone, but you will suffer because of me. And because of that suffering, I will use that suffering to draw people to me. And then he says this, But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm not about to usurp the Father's authority here. That's God, the Father's decision about who gets to sit where. That's his decision. That's not for me to say. But you guys, you guys will suffer the way that I suffered. And part of me just wonders as we're going through this, like where are the other ten disciples? I mean, are they right there? And do they hear this question? Or do you think James and John kind of pulled them aside and they said, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. We don't, we don't want the others to hear this. And this is what happens in verse 41. We find out what the disciples are thinking. It says, when the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John, all right? So basically, the disciples are furious. The disciples are angry because James and John just essentially called shotgun for all eternity, right? And they're mad. You called shotgun. And think back to when you were a little kid. I'm sure they were arguing over the rules. Oh, you didn't have both feet outside the temple. You got to have both feet outside the temple before you can call shotgun. And what we see is that the disciples, the other 10, are not thinking, you know, James and John, that was pretty unspiritual of you. No. No, they're thinking, I can't believe you would do that. Jesus, please tell us that we're not going to have to submit to them. That they're not going to have authority over us. That's their main concern. Their concern is, Jesus, aren't we significant? How can James and John ask for this position? Aren't we significant? We don't want to serve them. Don't tell us that we're going to have to serve them, Jesus. And you could tell that Matthew is probably a little bit bitter about this because in Matthew's account, it says that the mother of James and John came to Jesus. They pulled the mom card on Jesus, right? How low is that? Matthew's a little bit upset about this, but the disciples, they just continue to misunderstand. So Jesus calls them together. He says, hey, let's sit down. Let's have a little family meeting. And we read this in verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. Jesus is saying, look, you know the Romans have conquered us, and when they came in and they conquered us, their people who are in positions of authority demand respect from us. And you guys are asking the same questions that they're asking. You're looking to be honored, to receive respect in the same way that they are but they're not going about it the right way. There's a better way. There's a different way that I have in mind. And he says this in verse 43. Verse 43, he says, But it must not be like that among you. 
On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Now, in these three verses, 43 and following, Jesus is really going to lay out why it is that he came to die. You realize up to this point, it wasn't until chapter 8 that he actually told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and be killed and that he was going to have to die and rise again. Just two, two chapters back. And then he's told them over and over again, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to hand me over. They're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me and I'm going to die, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. He's told them all of that, but he's never told them why he has to die. And in these verses, we're going to kind of see Jesus' mission statement here. Jesus is finally going to explain to his disciples why he had to die. And he says this. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I can imagine the disciples are standing around there, and Jesus says, look, if you want to be important, if you want to be significant, be a servant. If you want to be the first and foremost among everyone else, be a slave. And I can almost guarantee you, not one of the disciples went, yes, I could be a slave. They're thinking, no, Jesus, we know what it means to be a slave. We know what it means to be a servant. No one in our culture would ever desire to be in a position like that. No one would ever want to be put in that position. They would never voluntarily do that. Jesus, are you crazy? Are you crazy? But then he says this. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, verse 45, Jesus uses this term, Son of Man. And this is a very important term. This is Jesus' favorite term to use for himself. And it's very important because this term doesn't have much, as much to do with Jesus' humanity as it does his divinity. In Daniel chapter 7, we read this. Daniel has a vision of heaven, and he sees God sitting on his throne, and he says, And I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so when Jesus uses this term, the Son of Man, he's saying, hey, that vision that Daniel saw, that's me. I am God. This is his most bold claim to being God that, that we ever see. He says, I am the one. I am the only one. The Son of Man, who is God, he is the only one who deserves to be worshipped. He is the only one who de deserves to have control, power, and respect. That's me. That's me. And then he uses another term. He says, but the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom there simply means the price paid to, to free slaves. The price paid to free slaves Jesus is saying, look, I came to set the prisoners free. You are all enslaved to your sin. You're trapped. There's no way out. And I've come to pay that price to set you free. I've come to pay the price to set you free that you can have a relationship with God and so that other people can know God. And Jesus is showing them, hey, look, you are my followers, and I'm calling you to the exact same thing. I'm calling you to give your life the same way that I'm giving my life to the many. 
Will you follow me? Will you follow me? He says, look, when I told you to carry your cross, this is what I meant. Carry your cross. Remember, we said that that, that was an indication that they would have to die. And Jesus is saying, look, you, some of you will physically be put to death. You will die. But I'm asking you to die probably an even harder death. I'm asking you to die a death to self. Will you follow me in that? And Jesus says this. He says, watch, I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll show you what it's like to give your life for the many. Jesus is saying the significant life is the one that serves God by serving others. The significant life is the one that serves God by serving others. Jesus did all of this out of service to God to bring honor and glory to him, but he gave his life so that others could be able to experience God the Father. Now, Paul picks up this idea in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He says this. He says, your attitude, your, your own attitude should be that of Christ. Make your own attitude that of Christ. Your attitude, the way you approach life, the way you talk to other people, the way you think about other people should be like that of Christ Jesus. And he goes on and says, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Some translations say he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He didn't come to earth and say, hey, I'm the son of God. Bow down and worship me right now. I'm the son of God. Go get my mule. Go get my water. Hey, don't you know who I am? No, he set aside all of those things, and we read that in the next few verses. Instead, he emptied himself. What does it mean, he emptied himself? Well, we know that Jesus was fully God. He never stopped being fully God. We know that he was fully man. He never stopped being fully man. What does it mean that he emptied himself? It means that he gave up his right to be worshipped as God. He gave up his rights. When he came, he said, I'm going to give up my right to be worshipped. And I'm going to serve you. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in external form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to have to give your life. I have humbled myself. I am the only one who is worthy of any respect and honor and power and control. Yet I have given that up to set an example for you. If you want to be great, if you want to lead a life of significance, you must serve others. Now, thinking about the cross and everything that Jesus went through, all of that suffering, why? Why would Jesus go through that? And we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that it was for, uh, it says, let us fix our eyes. 12 to, excuse me. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 12 to, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross and despised in shame, he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Why would Jesus suffer all of those things? Well, it tells us right there, for the joy. Now you're thinking to yourself, joy? How could that kind of pain and suffering be joy? Jesus 
had an eternal perspective. Jesus was able to see through the cross to all eternity. And he could see not the pain and suffering that he would experience on the cross, but he could see the many, many lives that would be changed by people who would put their trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior and then be able to experience God forever. And that was his joy. And he's telling his disciples, you need to have the same perspective. I want you to have that same eternal perspective. I'm bringing glory to the Father by completing what he sent me to do, by conquering sin and death and hell forever. I'm bringing people back to him. Therefore, this is great joy to me. It's great joy. Now, I want you to serve me by serving others. Give your life for many. Can you follow me in this? I think this is still something that I struggle with on a daily basis. To surrender that control and to, to really just recognize that God has called me not to be in a position where I get respect or honor. I mean, think about your own life. Who is it in your life that challenges these things from you? I mean, do you find yourself thinking, I deserve this? I deserve this. You see, the disciples, their biggest struggle was that they felt entitled. They felt entitled to a position. They felt entitled to some power. They felt entitled to some respect and some honor. And I think many of us struggle with the same things today. My question to you is this. Who is it that you're expecting those things from? Who is it that you're demanding these things from? This power and control. Who in your life is threatening those? What I'd like for you to do right now is everyone... Just spend some time. Let's close our eyes. And I'd like for you to think of just two names of people that are maybe threatening this in you. They threaten your security. They threaten your power. They threaten your respect and your honor. Maybe it's someone that you've been demanding these things from. Just think of their names. If you want to write them down, you can. Put them in your phone. Who is it in your life that is getting in the way of those things for you? I want you to consider this. What would it look like? What would it look like for you to release them of that? What would it look like for you to say, okay, I'm not going to demand this respect and power and honor from you anymore. Instead, I'm going to serve you. What would it look like for the person that you're struggling with loving? What would it look like for you to, instead of holding a grudge against them, to serve them? What would that look like? What is it that maybe God is calling you to do this morning? You can open your eyes. One of the things that I've noticed about this, this servanthood, this um, servant leadership, we hear it a lot in the, in the work world of being a servant leader and being the kind of person that serves others. It's beginning to begin uh, to be highly valued in the workplace. And Something that I thought of this week is that there are a lot of people who do get it. They get that life is more than about themselves, and they want to serve others. But there's still a piece of them that's missing. They serve other people. We see them giving their life away, and yet they're still bitter at times. They're still angry at times because here I am. I'm serving all these people, yet nobody's serving me. Or I'm serving all these people, yet it still feels empty, and I can't figure out why. 
Well, Jesus tells us exactly why. Jesus tells us we know that the significant life begins by trusting in Jesus. The significant life begins by trusting in Jesus. You can give of yourself all day long, but until you begin that relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, trusting that that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and on the third day that he rose again, proving that was God's demonstration that he had accepted the ransom that Jesus paid. He said, look, I'm going to raise you from the dead so that people will know that I've accepted your sacrifice on their behalf. Jesus became the cup of suffering for us. And through that death, he paid the ransom on our behalf. And God demonstrated that I have accepted this ransom by raising him from the dead, proving that Jesus had overcome sin and death and hell. So that all who would simply trust in Jesus as their Savior could experience eternal life with God and the forgiveness of their sins. The significant life begins by trusting Jesus. You can try as hard as you want to go out and serve other people, but you're going to continue to find it empty until you put your trust in Jesus. And I just want to say this morning, we've seen that Jesus has said, look, I'm the cup. I'm going to bear God's wrath for you. Romans 6.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you don't need the Bible to tell you that. I think deep down, as we examine ourselves, each and every one of us knows that at some point in our life, we have sinned. We've broken one of God's commandments, and Scripture tells us that because of that sin, we are eternally separated from God. And then Romans 5.8 tells us that But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't look down and say, hey, get yourself in church. Get yourself cleaned up. Stop listening to that music. Stop talking that way. Tuck your shirt in, and then I'll send my son to die for you. No, he said, I love you just the way you are, and you can come to me just as you are. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us while we were still sinners. And the best news is this, that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. These verses clearly tell us that it's simply by trusting Jesus that we receive this gift. How is it that we can receive the ransom that Christ has paid on our behalf? We simply trust in Jesus Christ. The same way that you're trusting those chairs are going to hold you up off the floor. Just rest in him. Rest in him. That's all it takes. Sadly, there are still some who say no. There was a man in the 1830s named George Wilson. George Wilson was a businessman. He was an upstanding man. Yet he fell on some hard times in his business, so he and and a partner decided that they were going to rob a mail wagon. And in the process of robbing the mail wagon, they accidentally killed the driver. George Wilson was captured, and he was tried, and he was sentenced to death. George Wilson's friends were very powerful, and they knew that this was not in his character. And so they wrote letters to the president, to the governor, to everyone, and finally Andrew Jackson, the president at the time, wrote him a presidential pardon. He was given a presidential pardon, yet... George Wilson said, I can't accept this. I can't accept this. And so he sat there in prison. And nobody knew what to do with him. The judge 
of the county had no idea what to do. Here is this man with a pardon, so we can't hang him, but he's telling us that he's going to serve out his sentence and be hanged. What do we do? And this case makes its way all the way up to Chief Justice Marshall. And in his opinion, this is what he wrote. A pardon is an act of grace which exempts the individual on whom it is bestowed from the punishment the law inflicts for a crime he has committed. A pardon is a deed, the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And George Wilson was hanged with a pardon sitting on the warden's desk. This morning I would ask you, if you have not begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, would you refuse that pardon, the ransom that he offers? Or would you embrace it and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you as my Savior so that I can begin this life of significance.